The Da Da Di Da Da Code by Robert Rankin Chapter 46 There was some unpleasantness, but then there always is. An unpleasantness born of misunderstanding, or, more often, misinformation. The constables from Special Ops had clearly been misinformed. They had been misled, set on a wrongin, led up the garden path, smoked like a kipper, and told a pork pie. And when they set out to apprehend the de-bearded Osama, they went in a gung-ho fashion. And when they encountered the world's most wanted himself, chatting away at the reception desk, it seemed odds-on that a capture, detain, torture-to-extract-information, shoot-whilst-trying-to-escape scenario was well on the cards, as it were. But this was not to be the case. There was indeed some unpleasantness, born indeed of misunderstanding, and also misidentification. Constables Paul and Justice were more than just taken aback by the fellows in black who stormed out upon them, fiends from the bottomless pit, as loosely predicted through the accurate reading of Kleenex tissues, Constable Paul supposed, what with the missing bodily bits and everything. And there had been something of a firefight, and it had come as something to a surprise of Constable Paul, in particular, just how powerful a bit of firepower was in the possession of Constable Justice. It came as an even greater surprise to Constables Cartwright, Cassidy, and Rogers, who took to an almost simultaneous surrender. There was even more unpleasantness when Inspector Westlake ordered the blackly-clad constables to divest themselves of their invisibility suits and pass them to his constables. And it was with some degree of glee that Constables Paul and Justice put them on. Then there was the matter of interrogation. Inspector Westlake demanded to be told exactly why he was being faced with a capture, detain, torture to extract information, shoot whilst trying to escape scenario when Constables Cartwright, Cassidy, and Rogers had been introduced to him the previous day and each and every one had found each and every other's credentials to be of the AOK persuasion. That trail led back to Johnny Hooker. And then there was even more unpleasantness when the constables in black led the other constables who now came and went in their commandeered invisibility suits, along with Inspector Westlake, to the coal cellar interrogation cell. And when this cellar door, a substantially steely affair, was unlocked, it revealed nothing more nor less than an empty chamber. Voices were raised again, and smiles were not to be seen. Johnny Hooker was smiling. But then Johnny Hooker had made good his escape, and he had done so, as might well have been expected, at least to those who had been following Johnny's adventures, via the medium of another secret passage. Free at last, free at last, sweet Tesco, we are free at last, sang Mr. Giggles somewhat enigmatically. Free for now, said Johnny, but caution must be our watchword from now on. Have to correct you there, said Mr. Giggles. Escape must be our watchword, indeed our only word, until we utter later words of the that-was-a-successful-escape variety. Possibly so, when the time comes, said Johnny Hooker, and he edged along another secret passage. Ah, no, said Mr. Giggles. It's up and away, my darling fellow, like unto how you promised. Oh, that, said Johnny, and edged along further. Yes, that, protested Mr. Giggles. That. You swore. You promised. I lied, said Johnny. Get over it and move on. I, 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 went Mr. Giggles. You've lied to me often enough. I am merely returning the favor, as it were. That doesn't make any sense. But no, you can't lie to me. 
That's not the way our relationship functions. Our relationship does not function, Johnny whispered. You manipulate me without shame or conscience. Now you have performed a service for me. We are even. That is nonsense. That doesn't compute. You can stick around and bother me, or you can leave me alone, said Johnny. I no longer wish to communicate with you on any level. If you have my best interests at heart, which is to say, your best interests, I would suggest that you depart at once. Your verbal meanderings may well distract me when I need my concentration to be at its most acute. This could easily result in my death at the finger of some trigger-happy constable. What do you think of this? Mr. Giggles made grumpy noises. I will not be distracted or dissuaded, said Johnny. But, went Mr. Giggles, I'm not listening. But, are you going or what? I think I'll just stick around a tad longer, said Mr. Giggles. As you please. So what are you going to do next? But Johnny didn't answer. Let us answer the call, said Her Majesty the Queen, finishing her cuppa, dusting Bicky crumbs from her chin, and gently awakening Bob. The comical pup did comical yawnings, dear little fellow that he was. Might I lead the way? asked Countess Vanda. You do that, dear, said Her Madge. It's all but twelve o'clock. The Ormolu mantle clock chimed on the Ormolu mantle. It had been a present to Sir Henry Crawford from Napoleon Bonaparte. It still kept perfect time. The clock and the mantle were now to be seen as the lights had gone up in Princess Amelia's sitting room. Countess Vanda's desk and accoutrements had been removed to make way for a mighty conference table. Surrounding this were five chairs. At the head of the table, her madge for the use of, a gorgeous gilded throne-type jobby, which had been known to bums of royalty for more than two hundred years. The Parliament of Five entered the room. Elvis cast longing eyes towards Her Majesty's throne, for after all, he was the king. Ahab the Arab was rather taken with Sir Henry's mantle clock, because, as he might have put it, we are simple desert people, and such marvels of the West fill us with wonder. Bob the comical pup noted all the waste paper baskets, reasoning that if he was caught short, at least he wouldn't be forced to piss on the carpet. There were named place-setting cards upon the great table so that there would be no confusion nor scrambling for particular seats. Her madge sat at the table's head, which was to the north. To her left, on the eastern side of the table, Elvis, then Bob. To her right, on the western side of the table, Ahab, then Mr. Bagshaw. At the southern end of the table, to read the minutes, take dictation, pop out for coffee, sweets, dog biscuits, etc., Countess Vanda. When the Parliament of Five were seated, Countess Vanda closed and locked the door and took her place at the table. Her Majesty nodded and smiled that smile of hers, the one she had been taught to smile by her mum. Thank you, dear, she said, and plucked from her cardigan sleeve a slip of paper. And then she cleared her throat and read from it. It was not the speech that she had been rehearsing earlier. This was a later, honed-down version passed to her as she left the palace. Why? Who can say? Parliament of Five, she read. We are gathered here today upon matters of the gravest import. Our intervention in world matters we keep to the necessary minimum. We steer the course of nations by means of the influence we can exert over those of high office who we have placed there to act in our interests, which are to say, the interests of all. Here, here, went Mr. Bagshaw. Where, went Bob the comical pup. At present... Her madge continued. There exists a state of tension. 
There is fear and there is menace. There is the ever-present danger of escalation. That the spark might ignite the powder keg and bring about global confrontation. Indeed, the possibility of global extinction. The destruction of the human race. We, the Parliament of Five, must settle this situation once and for all. And are we agreed upon this? She concluded. On that, we are no doubt all in agreement, said Ahab the Arab. It is the manner in which the situation is to be settled that might be a cause for disagreement. Mr. Bagshaw went, ahem. Her Madge said, Mr. Bagshaw, take the floor as you will, so to speak. Thank you, ma'am, Mr. Bagshaw cleared his throat. Brother Ahab, I believe, has some fears that we might consider a radical solution a tenable option. A radical solution? queried her Madge. A nuclear solution, said Mr. Bagshaw. Damn and tootin' right, said Ahab, and naturally, as a humble tent-dweller with little or no education, ill-versed in the ways of Western sophistication, and force-fed a diet of vegetarian McDonald's and kipper fillets, I concur that on the face of it, it is probably the best thing to do. Oh, said Mr. Bagshaw, you do? I have my mobile with me, said Ahab. It's a Tesco mobile. And as a valued customer, I have a free voicemail facility for three months. I can phone the nuclear command center in Baghdad and have a nuke shot over to wipe out Israel in less than half an hour. Nuclear command center in Baghdad? said Bob the comical pup. It's a U.S. thing, said Elvis, and he curled his lip in a manner that her madge found most appealing. A U.S. thing? said Bob. You mean the Americans have placed nuclear missiles in Baghdad that are aimed at Israel? Tut tut, Bob, said her Madge. Could you think of a better place to put them? No blame could possibly attach to the West if they are ever fired. Might I just raise my hand here? said Mr. Bagshaw. Need the bog? said Bob, a pup to whom the appellation comical seemed more in the realm of irony. Are we sanctioning the nuclear destruction of Israel? Mr. Bagshaw inquired. I'm not objecting, you understand. I'm only asking. It's an option, said her Madge. One amongst many that we can discuss. Not too many, I hope, said Ahab. I've brought my satellite TV. Father Ted is on at three. Then we'll try to get done by two. Her Majesty brought out her knitting from somewhere and click, click, clicked with the needles. My guys, said Elvis, which is to say, my army, which is to say, the American army, are keen to be home by Thanksgiving. I could have them pulled out in a couple of weeks. Then Israel could be nuked, and in the forthcoming nuclear retaliation, none of my guys would get hurt. That's fair, said Ahab. My family, of course, would all die. You can't make a peanut and banana flapjack without breaking eggs, said Elvis. Is it time for lunch yet? I'm peckish, said her Madge. Lunch might be nice. Might I read through the notes so far? asked Countess Vanda. You do that, dear, said her Madge. Full-scale American troop withdrawal from Iraq, followed by nuclear assault on Israel launched from Baghdad, followed by nuclear retaliation from Israel resulting in the destruction of Iraq and Iran, said Elvis, to be on the safe side, and Lebanon, said Mr. Bagshaw, and Libya. Take out the entire Arab world, mess cleared, job done, and time for lunch, said Her Majesty the Queen. The Parliament of Five now left the secret meeting room. A pair of eyes that watched them leave went blink, blink, blink behind them. This pair of eyes had peered through the eye holes in the portrait of Sir Henry Crawford. 
The pair of eyes belonged, of course, to Johnny Hooker. The pair of ears, one to either side of this head, did also. Johnny Hooker replaced Sir Henry's canvas eyes and stood in the darkness. You heard all that too, didn't you? he said, and there was silence. Then the words, You mean me? I mean you, Mr. Giggles, said Johnny. You heard all that in there, didn't you? Yes, I believe I did. They're going to nuke the Middle East. Seems so, yes. The Queen, said Johnny, Elvis Presley, and a talking dog. Don't forget the camel jockey and the bloke out of Thunderbirds. They're insane, said Johnny. They'll destroy us all. I'm sure there's method in their madness. What? I'm sure they know what they're doing. I'm sure that they don't. So what do you propose to do about it? I'll expose them, said Johnny. I'll expose them to the world. Oh, right, said Mr. Giggles. You tell the world that Her Majesty the Queen, Elvis Presley, the dead king of rock and roll, and a talking pup named Bob are plotting to instigate a nuclear war. Hmm, went Johnny Hooker. Hmm, indeed, went Mr. Giggles. Don't you see, Johnny? Don't you understand how this works? Johnny Hooker shook his head in the darkness. I'll assume that was a shake, said Mr. Giggles. It works in this fashion. Each and every one of us has a little bit of the conspiracy theorist in us, even if it's only a tiny bit. At one time or another, we've each felt like we're not being told all of the truth, even on a minor level, by our doctor or our accountant or our lover, because we're not, said Johnny. Quite so. But usually it's trivial, just the usual lies that folk tell each other. And we all do it. But when you are in charge of a nation, a continent, the lies can get quite big. Big and important. And the theory that there is something else going on behind the scenes, that there is some big secret that we're not being told, it is a big secret, which is why we're never going to be told it, well, now you know it's true. But now you also know you can do absolutely nothing about it, because no one will believe you. Because the truth is so ludicrous, so fanciful, so outré, so whacked out, that no one will ever believe it. Which is why it's true which is why it works. But we can't let those loonies kill millions of innocent people. Who is innocent? asked Mr. Giggles. Don't give me that. Fair enough, said Mr. Giggles. Let's away then. We'll leave the park, then you can phone up the Sunday sport and tell them everything you know. That sounds like a plan, said Johnny. Top man, said Mr. Giggles. But I can do better than that, said Johnny. I can broadcast my story. Not quite following you there said Mr. Giggles. No, said Johnny, but I have a plan, and with my plan, if all works out, I'm going to save mankind. Chapter 47 Inspector Westlake had a plan, and this he now explained. He sat in the cab of the big special ops lead truck in the crowded company of Constables Paul, Justice, Cartwright, Cassidy, and Rogers. Play it back again, he told Constable Cartwright. Constable Cartwright tinkered with the super sat nav. There, he said, and he pointed. You see how he slipped into the boot of the last limo? That didn't slip by me. We arrested him as soon as he stepped from the boot. And those, Inspector Westlake pointed to the glowing shapes of three other men. Those would be myself and my two constables entering another of the limos, but you failed to notice that at the time. 
Constable Cartwright grunted in the affirmative. Can you bring it up? asked the inspector. Not quite following you there, sir, said Constable Cartwright. The image of the terrorist in the boot. Can you expand the image? I think I can do better than that, said Constable Rogers. I've been having a little tinker with this jobby whenever I've had a free moment, and it could do all kinds of party tricks. You're hoping to identify the terrorist, I suppose. Inspector Westlake nodded. Then just watch this and be prepared to be impressed. And Constable Rogers took to tinkering. The sat-nav image of the body in the boot zoomed in, and a fuzzy image of a man's face filled the screen. Then a grid formed about it, twisted at 90 degrees, and a three-dimensional model appeared. Then the screen split with the facial image to the left and a blur of faces to the right as the computer skipped through the central database in search of a match. Constable Paul watched it searching. He knew that sooner or later, and probably sooner rather than later, it would find its match amongst the inmate files of the special wing of Brantford Cottage Hospital. Oh dear me, Johnny, whispered Constable Paul under his breath. You are in so much trouble. Bingo, went Constable Rogers. Jonathan Hooker, local boy, escaped mental patient. Escaped mental patient and serial killer, said Inspector Westlake. And I thought he was dead. And he tapped his finger against the sat-nav screen. I'll have you, my lad, I will. You mentioned something about a plan, I believe, sir, said Constable Justice. Whoa, went Constable Paul. His head's all vanished away again. Keep the suits switched off, said the inspector. I did say something about a plan, yes, and I am going to outline this plan to you right here and now, so there can be no confusion when we put this plan into operation. Do I make myself understood? So far, said Constable Cartwright. You're not going to have us prosecuted for shooting at you and trying to arrest you and all those other little mistakes, sir? No, said Inspector Westlake. Not as you've been trying so hard to impress me by being so helpful. Not if you can help me to pull off my plan. Firstly, I want you to go and collect every earphone and mic from every special ops operative in the park. I am in charge of this operation, not Thompson. I'll do that, said Constable Cassidy. I like a nice walk in the park. Jog, said the inspector. Yes, sir, said Constable Cassidy, and he squeezed his way from the cab. What do you want us to do? asked Constable Cartwright. I want you to impress me some more with this sat-nav gizmo. I want you to use it to locate the whereabouts of Mr. Jonathan Hooker, serial killer, and would-be assassin. Train the sat-nav on the big house, and let's flush this blighter out. That's very clever, said Constable Cartwright. Very clever what? Very clever, sir, said Constable Cartwright. That does sound like a rather clever plan said Mr. Giggles, the monkey boy. Would you care to run it by me just one more time, in case I missed anything? No, I wouldn't, said Johnny. Oh, yes, you would. You really would. All right, said Johnny. It's very simple. I am going to use James Crawford's laptop, which I have here in the poacher's pocket of this ill-smelling jacket, to record the rest of this afternoon's meeting. It has a webcam jobby on it and a mic for sound. I'll put it up to the eye holes of the portrait and record the proceedings. Then I'll email it to every news agency in the world. And you can really do that? With that little laptop computer? That and a whole lot more. It's a pretty smart plan, is it not? It is, 
said Mr. Giggles, with a somewhat thoughtful tone in his voice. "'I'll have them,' said Johnny. "'Ludicrous and impossible as though they may be, I'll expose them to the entire world. "'When people see them with their own eyes and hear them with their own ears "'and watch the situation in the Middle East coming apart exactly as the Parliament of Five have orchestrated it, "'they'll believe me then.' "'Yes,' said Mr. Giggles. "'I do believe they might.' "'I've got them,' said Johnny. "'I'll bring them to justice. "'They'll pay for their crimes against mankind.' "'And Johnny Hooker rubbed his hands together. "'They are in so much trouble,' he said. "'Just wait till they get back from lunch.' "'Count Otto Black was having his lunch. "'He'd had to send out a dwarf to pilfer special operations field rations, "'but he was enjoying this lunch all the same. "'The glove woman sat at the keyboard of the heirloom, "'flexed her fingers, and clicked her long neck from side to side. "'Phase one is a success,' said she. "'Oh, yes,' said Count Otto. "'Phase one. "'Our magnetized parliament of five danced to the tune of the heirloom. "'As puppets they do dance, bereft of their own wills, "'made slaves to the magnetic flux beamed upon them. "'And how humorously so. "'The opening theme you played so well upon the keyboard. "'I so enjoyed the Arab.' Such false modesty, and such subtle innuendo. I am honored that you appreciate my technique, said the glove woman. A little trill of my own, here and there, to take the edge off the brutality of the message. To inject a little humor, a little joviality. Oh, sweet, sweet, crooned the Count. They are our puppets. They dance to our tune. He approached the infernal machine and ran the long and slender hand up and down one of the tall glass tubes. Dangerous energy swirled within. Magnetic fluxes fluxed. Oh, yes, the Count continued. Oh, sweet, sweet, sweet. We shall indeed prevail. Chapter 48 At somewhat after two of the afternoon clock, the Parliament of Five returned to Princess Amelia's sitting room. They could have returned there sharp upon two, as folk will do after having their lunch hours, but this was the Parliament of Five, for dearness' sake, the secret rulers of the world, the controllers who control the controllers. If they chose to be late back from lunch, who was going to tell them off? Johnny watched them through the eye holes of Sir Henry Crawford's portrait. Swine, he whispered to himself, filling their evil guts and I'm starving. You should have brought a packed lunch, said Mr. Giggles. Forward planning is everything. You'll pass out from the hunger if you're not careful. Let's go down to the pub. Johnny did not dignify this with an answer. Her madge settled herself back into her gilt and throne-like at the head of the table and bade the others take their seats. But all had done so already. Round two, said her madge. Ding, ding, seconds out and all that kind of caper. Kind of caper, said Bob. Does the queen say things like kind of caper? "'It's what being queen is all about,' said the queen. "'We would not say kind of caper in front of the plebes, of course. "'We just waves wee's hand and smiles wee's special smile.' "'And she smiled her special smile in demonstration. "'And all agreed that it was a special smile. "'Where were we up to?' asked Her Majesty, "'the Queen of Countess Vanda at the table's end. "'Countess Vanda ran through the notes, "'and while she did so, Johnny diddled about "'with the late James Crawford's laptop.' The mic and the webcam jobbies were on extendable wires, and Johnny extended these. He poked the mic through one eye hole of the portrait and the webcam through the other. 
Then he wiggled them about until perfect sound and vision were to be heard and seen in the laptop screen department. Damning evidence, take one, he said as he fingered keyboard keys and got the whole thing up and running. Look at that, he said to Mr. Giggles. Lovely image on the screen, eh? And perfect sound quality. The ultimate reality show. What would you call it? I'm a celebrity and I secretly rule the world, so don't get me out of here. What do you think? On past experience, said Mr. Giggles, I think it will all end in tears. But let's look on the bright side. You're all hidden away in a secret passage where you can't really get yourself into any trouble for the moment, and no one is likely to find you. So that's something, isn't it? That's something, said Inspector Westlake in the constable-crowded vehicle. What is that something? That something, said Constable Cartwright, is Joan on the reception desk. She's a bit of all right, that Joan, isn't she? Inspector Westlake cuffed the constable lightly on the ear. We are supposed to be discovering the location of the serial killer, he said. Impress me, if you will. Will do, sir, said Constable Cartwright. Now here, and he did pressing of buttons, is an architectural schematic of the big house that I downloaded from the central database. The only people inside the big house should be the six attendees of the secret meeting. Secret meeting? said Constable Cartwright. What secret meeting is this? You mean you don't know about the secret meeting? asked Constable Rogers. What do you think we're all doing here anyway? That's what I kept asking, said Constable Cartwright. Again and again I asked. Oh, yeah, said Constable Rogers. And you never did get an answer, did you? No, I bloody didn't. Language, said Inspector Westlake. Well, sir, it's not fair. So what is this secret meeting for? asked Constable Paul. No one's told us either. Is it to organize a comeback concert for Elvis? Elvis? said Constable Cartwright. We came with him in that limo, said Constable Paul. Nice chap. I don't believe he really has Barry the Time Sprout in his head. Barry the Time Sprout? Enough. Inspector Westlake raised a fist, and the constables cringed at its raising. For your information, and your information alone, or at least those of you who don't already know, a secret meeting is being held in Princess Amelia's sitting room. A secret meeting of heads of state to sort out the troubles in the Middle East. And Elvis Presley is a head of state? asked Constable Justice, for he hadn't said anything in a while. Slightly puzzled about that myself, said Inspector Westlake. I saw Her Majesty, a shifty-looking Arab, a bloke who looked like brains out of Thunderbirds, and a dog. A dog? said Constable Paul. There is a dog, said Constable Cartwright, pointing to the screen of the advanced sat-nav. It's sitting at the table in Princess Amelia's sitter. Six around the table, including a dog. That would be the secret meeting, said the inspector. Now scan about a bit and let's see if we can zero in on our serial killer. Constable Paul chewed on his lip but kept his thoughts to himself. Ah, said Constable Cartwright. Here's something. Inspector Westlake looked on. More people, said Constable Cartwright. In fact, another five. But they're not our men, because there are none of our men left in the big house. None of your men, said Inspector Westlake. You arrested us, said Constable Cartwright. We were the big house secret security team. Just the three of you? There were more. Constable Rogers crossed himself. But the invisibility suits, they sort of... Sort of what? went Constable Paul, as did Constable Justice. Sort of blew up one after another. It's all been a bit stressful, really, said Constable Cartwright. Which is why we didn't really mind handing our suits over to you blokes. 
Constable Paul was now struggling to remove himself from his suit. Keep it on, said Inspector Westlake. We may have need of it. But, sir, keep it on and pay attention. If there are no security forces in the big house, who are those other people registering on the sat-nav? Constable Cartwright twiddled for their knobs. I'm getting a big reading here. Five people, said he. And in the basement, said he. In one of the storage rooms, said he also. And, and he paused. And, said Inspector Westlake, there's something more, sir. There's something down there with them, and it's chucking out a lot of radiation. As in heat? As in magnetic, sir. Magnetic? Inspector Westlake tried to give his head a scratch, but it was very crowded, so he only succeeded in scratching Constable Justice's. Thank you, sir, said Constable Justice. But are you thinking what I'm thinking? Probably not, said Inspector Westlake. But pray, do tell what you're thinking. Nuke, said Constable Justice. No, said Inspector Westlake. You are not going to nuke anyone. I know how much you love your weapons, but no, sir, not me nuke, sir. In the basement, something big, giving off magnetic radiation. I remember reading in Jane's mega weapon catalog that the new Apocalypse 3000, Gamma Nub Nub, killed the lot and let God sort him out one size slays all, bomb, the one that can fit into a suitcase, gives off magnetic radiation when it's about to... Constable Justice's words trailed off. Explode? asked Constable Paul. Boom, went Elvis. Then boom, boom, how many booms did you say there'd be, Mr. Ahab the Arab, sir? Six should be enough. Mr. Bagshaw nodded his great big head. We will lose all of the Middle Eastern oil fields, he said as he nodded. But this will not present any difficulties, as the Russian ones we are presently opening up can more than cover the shortfall. Or, if not, we can always resort to the McGregor Mathers water car. What in the name of glory is that, sir? Elvis asked. It's a car that runs on water, rather than, as you colonials put it, gasoline. I want me one of them, said Elvis. And you might well get one. We've been holding back the patent for decades. At a pinch, we could put them into production. One with fins, said Elvis, and weather-eye air conditioning. And a litter tray, said Bob. Although that's really a pussy thing, but I do get caught short sometimes. So we are all agreed, asked her Madge, clicking away with her needles. Boom, 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 and all that kind of caper. Sounds good to me, said Mr. Bagshaw. Positively inspired, in my opinion. Oh, how splendid, said her Madge. We can all be home in time for tea. Well, at least I can, because I only live up the road. I love it when a plan comes together, said Ahab the Arab. That's off the A-team, by the way. We get that, too, dubbed as well. That Mr. T is a bit of a character, isn't he? I love the way he endorses Islamic Jihad every week. Well, said the Queen, then I don't think we need to spend any more time on this matter. The solution is indeed inspired. In fact, I have to say that I personally do not feel that I can take credit personally, personally, as it were. How so, your loveliness? asked Bob. Well, dear, said her Madge, as you know, we are English, and we are the Queen, so naturally enough, we are greatly loved by God. But we have to confess that he rarely, if ever, speaks to we personally. So when, during the course of this meeting, he has been singing away in we's head, telling we what to say, then that is what we mean by inspired, divinely inspired. You've been hearing the voice of Allah? asked Ahab the Arab. Well, said her Maj. Because so have I, 
although at first I thought it was Father Ted. I thought it was Colonel Tom, said Elvis. I thought it was my mum, said Mr. Bagshaw. I thought it was your mum, too, said Bob. But if it was God, well, so much the better for it, I say. The voice of God? Johnny Hooker gazed at the screen of the laptop. The voice of God? Just like Joan of Arc, said Mr. Giggles. No, said Johnny, not like that at all. Don't you get it? They haven't been making those terrible decisions. It's not them. It looks very much like them, said Mr. Giggles. It's not them, said Johnny, making the decisions. It's the heirloom gang. The Parliament of Five have been magnetized. They think they are being inspired by God, but it's not God. It's the heirloom beaming words into their heads. How could I have been so stupid as to not realize what was really going on? Mr. Giggles didn't answer. Mr. Giggles was silent. And sometimes, silence can say so much. And this was one of those times.